0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London.
1: And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington.
0: This week, we are going to talk about the Trump administration's attitude to the World Trade Organization. It is the biggest trade deal in the world, it has 164 members, and it embodies the global rules-based system of trade. When the president took office, a lot of people were really, really scared that essentially Trump was going to blow up the system. He talked about withdrawing, imposing tariffs, just generally breaking the rules and acting tough. If he'd done that, other countries would not have played nice. They would have retaliated and the rule book probably would have been burning on the side. But so far, at least as we can tell, no trade war has started. Not yet. And in this episode, we are going to give some warnings. So we're going to talk about how the World Trade Organization is still under threat in various ways that are less obvious than Trump's tweets. He's still attacking the WTO. They might not grab the headlines, but they could be just as damaging. Chad, where were you on Monday?
1: On Monday, I walked down the street here in Washington to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And my goal was to listen intently to Ambassador Robert Lighthizer give a speech.
0: Okay, so Robert Lighthizer is the United States trade representative. He is a pretty important guy when it comes to American trade policy. I also watched him give the speech. I watched it live with a, with a cup of tea in my office in London. Um, but Chad, what was it like? What was the atmosphere in the room like?
1: This was my first time being a journalist, so I had to get ready. So I dressed appropriately and my trench coat and my fedora hat and my sharpened pencil behind my ear. All yeah, we literally go.
0: all we all wear that, so that's great. Yeah. I'm glad you did that.
1: I, I, I got there early. I had a great spot next to all of the other trade reporters in Washington D.C. Now the room was absolutely packed. There were TV cameras everywhere, and to be fair, I guess this was to be expected. This was one of Ambassador Lighthizer's first public appearances. He has obviously given speeches after prior events, so the NAFTA negotiations. But this was really the first opportunity that he was going to give for the public to be able to ask him some questions. So it was a big deal.
0: Uh, and, and just again, to justify why both of us were so intent on watching this speech, Trump's speech at the UN matters, big picture policy. If he's gonna start nuking North Korea, then that that's clearly important. But Lighthizer is the one doing the work on the ground. He's the one negotiating with other trade ministers, forming the day-to-day, slightly more boring trade policy but the stuff that is likely to have an impact. He's also a really, really clever guy. He knows his trade law. And I think the main message to come out of the speech was that there are bits of it that he does really, really not like.
2: So it is with a great deal of pleasure that I want to introduce somebody for whom I have a lot of respect, Bob Lighthouser. Please.
0: So he gives the speech. It's pretty standard Trump's fare. And he says, you know, the system hasn't worked for Americans. And it's not just a matter of communicating the benefits of the WTO a bit better to Americans. There's something fundamentally wrong. And when he talked about communication, I was, you know, I did wonder maybe he should listen to trade talks, but I guess he's a busy guy.
1: Yeah. So I, I didn't propose that to him in, in <laughs> when I was there. Okay. So we should talk about the first thing that he talked about that's of substance in regarding the WTO. And that is some of the problems that he sees. He identified what he sees are major problems facing the global trading system. And that's really the WTO doesn't have good rules to deal with China. It's mercantilism. The fact that it's engaging in things like forced technology transfer, subsidizing industries heavily. China, China, China was a big part of his his focus.
0: And of course, as keen listeners to Trade Talks will remember, we have said that China does pose a problem for the global rules-based system. The rules just don't really... Deal with its way of running its economy.
2: The WTO and its predecessor, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, were not designed to successfully manage mercantilism on this scale. We must find other ways to defend our companies, workers, farmers, and indeed our economic system.
0: So here, Essentially Lighthizer is saying that the WTO, which is the only formal trade deal between the US and China, it defines the rules of trade between these two countries. He is saying that the WTO is just not very useful to reign in China. He's he's really questioning its relevance. And watching that, the question I had was whether the act of questioning its relevance could itself undermine this institution. If everyone starts thinking, uh, you know, Lighthizer doesn't really think that this is where the action is, then maybe they just start ignoring the rules based system of trade. But okay, it's still quite vague, you know, maybe this is just me being, you know, overly alarmist about this. And like, he finishes his speech and he promises this big change in policy.
2: President Trump won. We have a different philosophy and there will be change.
0: We're all watching intently. And then the exciting bit, there's a Q&A. And I'm sending Chad messages. I'm saying, ask him a question. And obviously I'm thinking about the next episode of Trade Talks. And I'm thinking, OK, I really hope that Chad's question is going to be about the WTO.
1: Guess what? It was well, about the WTO. <laughs> okay, so... Chad
0: loves the WTO. Obviously, it was about the WTO. Yeah.
1: So I started by warming him up with a softball question.
0: The moderator reads out your question. What was it? Let's
2: turn to the multilateral uh, uh, system for, for a moment. Uh, there is a ministerial conference uh, coming up in Buenos Aires this, uh, this fall. Uh, and uh, can you tell us what's, what's on the U.S. agenda for the ministerial conference? And more specifically... Uh, what, what does the Trump administration plan to do with the ongoing negotiations such as the one for for the trade and services agreement?
0: Well, Chad, you, you really know how to generate a headline. You're just diving in there with what the people want to know. So I know that this was actually a great question, but maybe explain to listeners why you didn't just ask the most boring question in the history of the world.
1: Well, this was my softball. This was my, my warm-up question for him. Okay, so... First of all, let's talk about what a ministerial conference is. So a ministerial conference is when the United States Trade Representative and all of the other trade ministers, the equivalents of the Lighthizers out there for the European Union and Canada and Japan, all the rest of them get together in one place. Okay, so this
0: is like an event for the WTO to kind of sit down and think, do we want to negotiate some new rules?
1: Exactly. So they don't do this all that frequently. So when they do actually get all these people together in one place, you want to take advantage of it. So what could actually get done at a ministerial like this? Well. Going on behind the scenes over the last couple of years, the United States and a host of other countries, mainly high-income countries, have been negotiating something called a Trade and Services Agreement, or TISA, and I know you love acronyms, so that's T-I-S-A, TISA.
0: I love acronyms. Yeah.
1: Right now, the WTO has relatively good rules for trade in goods, so beef and cars and cheese, all of our favorite things that you can touch but it doesn't have really good rules for trade and services. So if you think about internet companies, for example, the the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, big American companies that want to provide their services to foreign markets, there aren't really good rules that are protecting them. And so foreign governments typically want to engage in some sketchy things. They want these companies to have to join partnerships with local companies and share maybe their source code or set up data servers and data farms locally, maybe not transfer data about their foreign citizens. Anyway, there's not really good rules about these things. So the idea is this agreement, negotiate some new rules. And this is what's been going on over the last few years.
0: Okay, so you were essentially looking for evidence that Robert Lighthizer was thinking, hey, the WTO is a really useful forum for agreeing these new rules about services. Okay, so what was his response?
1: He didn't jump up and down, it was mostly platitudes. So he did say that services are good, and he recognized that the United States does have a trade surplus in services. So that's good, because coming out of the Trump administration so far, it's only been, when it comes to trade policy, manufacturing, manufacturing, manufacturing. Steel, aluminum, old industry stuff. On the other hand, he didn't say all that much that was positive, so I'll make a quote here. He said, it's unlikely that the ministerial in Buenos Aires is actually going to lead to a negotiated outcomes. There's a number of areas where we would be willing to engage, but there seems to be something blocking it in every case. So not a whole lot of optimism there.
0: I'm not getting huge, you know. I didn't get a huge sense that he was super excited about this this forum for getting new rules agreed. So not the worst question in the world, but Chad, you are a genius, and you had actually submitted two questions.
2: To continue with it with the WTO, uh, the United States has raised some objections to the dispute settlement understanding and the way the bodies are, are formed in that process. Could you tell us a little bit more about what what the U.S. is trying to accomplish in terms of changing or reforming the dispute settlement body?
0: I guess to listeners, this sounds like an even more boring question than the first question, but it wasn't. It was a great question. Thank you. I'm going to explain the context for this one. Okay, so Chad talked about there are these forums to agree new deals, but actually getting new deals is really, really difficult. The WTO has not been very successful at getting new deals agreed. There is another bit of the WTO that is working quite well. It's called dispute settlement. So how this works is if one country thinks that another country has broken the rules, agreed at the WTO, it can take it to court. There's a panel, it rules, they make a judgment, there's an appeals process. But if they find that someone has broken the rules and then that country refuses to mend its ways, then they can impose retaliatory tariffs. This thing has teeth. If you break the rules, there are consequences, and, and that is supposed to discourage bad behavior. Okay, so this system of dispute settlement, uh, under this, there have been about 500 formal disputes lodged since 1995, and there have been a couple of hundred formal legal decisions by this impartial body in Geneva. Essentially, countries are using this thing, and I think generally it's perceived as pretty fair, pretty useful. It's, it's being used. Today... Something really weird is happening. I said there was an appeals process. This is Court of Appeals and there are seven judges and the US is blocking the appointment of two of the spots. So at the moment there are only five judges there and the US is saying no, we're not going to start the process for appointing the other two. By the end of the year, there'll be a third spot that's opening up. The US is just saying no. Now For now, that's okay, you only need three judges to rule on any one case so the appeals court can go on. They already have a backlog so there are fewer judges and that will slow the process down. But eventually, if they can't fill any of the spots on these appeals courts, then there just won't be enough judges to serve. That's, that's a huge problem. So for some reason, the U.S. is essentially holding this body hostage, saying, nope, we won't agree for any new appointments to be made. Chad, why do you think this is a problem?
1: So I think you've characterized it exactly right. It's shocking in some level, because most analysts of the WTO's process refer to it as something like the crown jewel of the international system. But by stripping it of these judges, it couldn't really be coming at a worse time. We're seeing more and more of these disputes. They're getting much more complex. You actually need more staff to deal with these things. And so WTO should actually be putting more resources into the judges needed to make these rulings, to make them more quickly. And if you don't, businesses start to get unhappy because the the disputes are taking too long. And then countries just start taking matters into their own hands and the system can break down. So what the Trump administration seems to be doing here is to actually be pushing in the opposite direction of what's actually needed.
0: So what's not immediately clear is what the U.S. is trying to achieve by refusing to appoint new judges. So if you read the readouts from all the meetings, it seems like there's a kind of dull procedural issue. They object to the way that the old judges left but strangely they're not putting forward any specific ways to fix it and essentially everyone in geneva thinks that they've got a bigger agenda okay so back to the press conference so chad's what chad was asking is so given these disagreements and how dispute settlement bodies were formed what is the u.s trying to achieve in terms of reforming the dispute settlement body lighthizer answers in two parts first he says that he doesn't really like the process, it has some transparency issues, there are issues with staff, fine, you know this is all kind of boring, you can fix those. But then comes the, the big point.
2: But I think even beyond that uh, uh, the United States sees uh, numerous uh, examples where the dispute settlement process over the years has really diminished what we bargained for or, or, or imposed obligations that we and do not believe we we agreed to.
0: Chad, what is he talking about? What's his idea that decisions by WTO judges have worsened America's deal?
1: Okay, where do I even start? The US is a major participant in the system. So of the 500 disputes that you mentioned, The United States has been involved in more than 200 of them. And all of that is not surprising at all. The United States is a huge trading economy, and with more trade comes more frictions, more disputes.
0: Okay, and, and I guess Lighthizer, being a very experienced trade lawyer, he's very, very aware of these cases.
1: That's right. There's a particular set of disputes that I think are really sticking with him. Of the cases that other countries bring against the United States, the United States loses a fair number of those. And there have been a host all about this one issue, and it's an issue called zeroing. Now, it's a very technical issue involving anti-dumping, one of my favorites, or the imposition of unfair import restrictions, but it involves some fuzzy math and some technical bits that we don't really need to get into, but it's basically the United States has used this process to implement higher than normal import restrictions. And country after country has challenged the United States through formal disputes. The U.S. has lost about 20 of these disputes now, and yet it's being stubborn. It just refuses to stop doing this thing. And so I think the rulings that have continued to come against the United States over this one single issue is part of what's really sticking with Ambassador Lighthizer on the WTO.
0: I guess his view would be that when America negotiated the rules and joined the WTO, it signed up for a certain set of benefits. And as he sees it, that includes the ability to whack on these tariffs, these defensive duties on on imports. But everyone else's interpretation, including the judges at the WTO, is that actually, no, they can't do that. And so in his eyes, the judges are denying America benefits that it thought it had negotiated. And, and these judges are reaching beyond their remit, right? They're saying things that they shouldn't. OK, so is he right to be so annoyed about these decisions diminishing America's rights?
1: So in my view, no. So while there have been 20 legal rulings against the United States over this issue, it actually is making a mountain out of a molehill. It affects a tiny, tiny amount of U.S. trade. And it's certainly not an issue that you would want to threaten the entire WTO over.
0: Yeah. And I guess what American lawyers might see as outrageous decisions by WTO judges, the rest of the world might see as a system forcing America to live up to promises that they think it made. Okay, Chad, you've hinted that you quite like the WTO. I, I maybe get the sense that you don't think that there's really a problem with how the dispute system works.
1: So let me give a couple of arguments for why folks do refer to this thing as the the crown jewel. First, let's compare it to other types of international dispute settlement that are out there. And for our podcast listeners, you might remember our Naftanomics episode where we talked about a different kind of dispute settlement called ISDS, or Investor State Dispute Settlement. And this is a really controversial area in investment agreements. And it's really right now in the hot seat between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. That system is controversial because it's very non-transparent, they generate inconsistent rulings, but the problems that you have in that system, the WTO doesn't have. In fact, the European Union's proposal for a new multilateral investment court that they've been talking about, it actually borrows from a lot of the ideas that are found in the WTO. So that's the first thing. The second though, and perhaps even more importantly, is before this system of WTO dispute settlement was around, there was really no effective way of resolving disputes. And so you would have these bilateral skirmishes between countries that would flare up and there'd be no way to resolve them. What the WTO has effectively been able to do is to manage these things and to prevent them from escalating into full-blown trade wars and returning us to like the 1930s types of problems. We also have to remember the United States was the guiding force behind the negotiation of this new WTO dispute settlement system in the early 1990s though apparently it was other U.S. negotiators and not Ambassador Lighthizer that was on the ground at the time negotiating it.
0: So that's all lovely. I'm glad that you've had your moment to set out the case for the dispute settlement system and the WTO. But the fact remains that Lighthizer does not agree with you. The U.S. does not like the system. People in power don't like the system. Chad, did Lighthizer say anything to hint how he might want to change the system, make it better?
1: Mr. Lighthizer has had some relatively wacky ideas in his time. Back in 1996, and at this point in time, he was then advising Senator Robert Dole, who was the presidential candidate for the Republicans in the 1996 election, and his idea was to create, through legislation in the United States, a process that would review WTO appellate body decisions, basically saying that if there were three decisions that came out against the United States, Congress should have the ability to automatically take the United States out of the WTO agreement. So three strikes and you're out. Now, you think about that and you've got to let the United States win or we're going to take our ball and go home. And you can see right from the beginning, his idea is starting to undermine the credibility and the independence of this WTO organization.
0: So, you know, it might satisfy putting America first and giving America more power over the system, but it really does make it less useful by undermining the independence of the judges. Okay, but that was an idea from from 1996. So the thing I picked up from his speech was that he was talking, reminiscing about this system that was in place before the WTO dispute settlement system, uh, which is the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. So under that system, if a country had a problem with how another one was behaving, then it could say, hey, I'm taking out a dispute. But the weird thing about that system was that anyone could just block anything. That just meant that nothing got done. It led to gridlock.
1: Yeah, so I found it odd as well, reminiscing about this system that that effectively didn't work. He had this remarkable line from his, his remarks on Monday where he said, quote, and you know, the GATT had a system, you know, that was successful for a long period of time. Yikes, I thought to myself, it really wasn't an effective system. It was a system based on diplomacy as opposed to laws and rules. Now, when you start to think about that, who are the types of of groups that like those systems? Well, big countries, powerful countries, countries that can throw their weight around. Who likes laws? Smaller countries. I guess when you think about it from that perspective, it's not surprising from the Trump administration that we might hear a longing and reminiscing for the good old days uh, when they were more able to throw their weight around.
0: Yeah. And I guess from the perspective of the U.S., right, if any country benefits from a system of bullying and power as you say then America first could be good for America but the systemic risk that you have is that essentially the whole system collapses and that no one bothers bringing cases and and essentially the US ends up losing all the benefits it gets from having this rules-based system everyone starts acting alone and the whole system breaks down To summarize, I can see the logic that Lighthizer has. Maybe going back to an old version where the US could flex its muscles could make sense from his perspective. But it doesn't sound like it would strengthen the rules-based system of trade. And the risk is that it raising American power would just undermine the usefulness of the whole thing. So I think tying together all the strands from this speech, the impression I got was that the Trump administration is not thinking actively about how to engage positively in this rules-based system of trade. There were a couple of things. So Lai did say that if he found a violation of the rules by China, he started this investigation into Chinese trade practices. If he found a violation, then he would take a case at the WTO. So he doesn't think the system is completely useless. But he doesn't seem that enthusiastic about negotiating new rules at the WTO. He's currently blocking appointments to the appellate body, so he seems to be trying to undermine the one bit that does work, this dispute settlement system. And taken together, all these things really could undermine the WTO. And. I think there's a big question mark over what would be left at the end of that.
1: So what we're left with is Mr. Lighthizer is very, very clever. He knows the WTO's weaknesses and unfortunately, how to exploit them to potentially undermine the system if he chooses to do so. Now, under
2: this uh, binding dispute settlement process, we have to figure out a way to have, from our point of view, to have it work.
1: I see. Time for some acknowledgments. So first, a big thanks to the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington for hosting the event with Ambassador Lighthizer and for sharing the event recording. Thanks also to Petros Mavroidis at Columbia Law School and Tom Prusa at Rutgers University for the work that the two of them have done and the work that I have done with them on zeroing.
0: And I want to thank Brendan McGiven, who's a lawyer and WTO expert, and also James Backus, former head of the WTO's Appellate Body and newly minted Professor of Global Affairs at the University of Central Florida. That is all from Trade Talks. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And, and you know, tell your friends or, or just random people that you think might like it. If you have specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Samaya Keynes on Twitter.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we are on at Trade underscore underscore Talks.
1: That's not one, but two underscores. At Trade underscore underscore Talks. Because when it comes to being a cub trade reporter, a one-part WTO question just wasn't enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah.